Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith, and this week I am joined by Dr. Stephanie Reist, who has a doctorate in Latin American Studies from Duke University and is a lecturer at Stanford. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. Thanks so much for the invitation. We last spoke to you back in March of 2020. I, I had a listen back, and it's sort of bizarre to hear it's essentially a different world. COVID had just started. and One of, one of my first questions was... Uh, do we, are we worried that uh, people like Bolsonaro might use COVID to uh, clamp down on civil liberties? It turned out to be the exact opposite case. The other thing about those very early days of COVID is at the time, Bolsonaro was sort of single-handedly spreading COVID around Brazil, it seemed. Uh, I guess what we know of Bolsonaro's actions throughout the pandemic is that as well as single-handedly spreading it, uh, he also seems to take up you know, a huge amount of the infection numbers, just constantly getting it over and over again. <laughs> Could you take our listeners through how Bolsonaro responded to the pandemic and did it have any effect on this recent election result? So I was in Brazil through June 2021, so kind of the height of the pandemic. And the initial reaction of Bolsonaro and throughout was kind of just complete disinterest. He frequently called it a little flu. There's been research or, or evidence that he didn't even look at emails from Pfizer because Brazil was one of the countries with kind of the largest deaths, death toll up until this point, lots of lots of infections. Interestingly, with Brazil, as in other places in the global south, the first people to bring COVID to Brazil were the white and wealthy, and then rapidly it spread in favelas and low-income areas of the country because those are the people who you know, had to keep going to work. There is a lot of different variation throughout the country. I can speak more directly to Rio, where to a large extent, the local government did take it very seriously. And that's where a lot of the kind of political clashes came about. Bolsonaro, I think, has something over like 100 requests for impeachment in Congress. And basically, there's just one person, Lira, who's head of the lower house, who could move those forward. And a lot of that had to do with his handling of COVID, misappropriating funds, not getting the vaccine rollout quickly. I will say just as an aside, Brazilian scientists worked very hard, particularly Fiocruz in Rio and the health kind of research center in Sao Paulo. But they did develop their own version of the vaccine together with Chinese researchers. So there was a, a version, but slower rollout. So a lot of it... and particularly because there is somewhat of a centralized system, how the federal government stepped back really caused a lot of the 
death toll in the country. But in some ways, he was also able to capitalize on it. And some people say gain support. He took kind of the lingering aspects of Bolsa Familia. This is actually pushed through by like left and center people in Congress to have some sort of payouts to people during the pandemic because so many people could not work. And I think initially Bolsonaro wanted it to be like 200 reais, which is maybe about like $40 US. And they got it up to 600. But because people saw it or in Bolsonaro's camp saw it as him being able to garner some more votes, they did up it to 600. And then he took away a lot of the conditions. Bolsa Familia went to primarily working mothers who had to enroll their children in school. Bolsonaro kind of made it just a general benefit. And more recently, other kind of benefits, which is why we'll talk about this later, but a lot of the the truck drivers have supported him because he also kind of subsidized gasoline purchases. So I think politically, in terms of the allies that he was able to maintain, it hurt him greatly. And that's actually why we haven't really seen, although that's changing a little bit right now, we haven't really seen that much of political allies kind of backing his calls of that there was voter fraud and things like, or not voter fraud, but election fraud, or that the election was stolen, because it would be hard for individuals to kind of fraud the Brazilian system, but that the, the vote itself was stolen because he lost a lot of political will due to the pandemic. I think a, a lot of people saw just his utter incompetence, including the media, the business community, people who initially backed him and kind of have now, perhaps somewhat reluctantly, but kind of called on people to vote for Lula because of just his disastrous handling of the pandemic, both as just an individual who contracted it so many times, but also as, you know, as a, as the president of Brazil. One of the other things we discussed last time was that, uh, you know, Bolsonaro's election sort of came on the back of this economic crisis. And there was also you know, a large, wide ranging corruption scandal in Brazil that uh, took in PT, Lula's party. <laughs> How did Bolsonaro's fight against corruption go after he took power? <laughs> Oh, great question. I mean, he basically dissolved oh, really? <laughs> the team that, that was, in, was in charge of Lava. Backing up a little bit, the judge, Sergio Moro, who kind of put the nail in the coffin of, of Lula in 2008 so that he couldn't run, imprisoned him for nine years because of a condo that he never owned and kind of just general this idea that Lula was the head of this massive corrupt machine known as the Workers' Party. He was kind of the head, the, the figurehead of Lava Jato, of the Operation Car Wash. And Sergio Moro, for, as a reward for being, for putting Lula in prison, was Bolsonaro's minister of security. But they had a little bit of infighting, mostly around the federal police and kind of the amount of jurisdiction that they had to pursue certain charges, particularly related to Bolsonaro's family. So that was a little bit of a fallout between them and Sergio Moro did end up stepping down from his position, although they have since kind of reunited politically and ideologically. But by and large, I mean, the Bolsonaro family has, <laughs> I don't, I can't remember the number now, but several houses, most of which have been bought with cash. His family is tied to numerous kind of not small scale, but kind of more local Rio money laundering things. It's called Hasha Genius. So basically you hire someone to be in your, if you're an elected official, you hire someone to be in your team, 
but that money is just kicked back to you. The head of this was Kirois, who also has some ties to militias. So there's all these questions around, you know, Bolsonaro's ties to kind of, I don't want to say lower level, actually like mass criminal organized crime connections, particularly Rio's militias. But then there's also just been since I think late 2021, Foley has done a lot of investigations into what's known as the Orçamento Secreto, which is kind of the secret budget. So essentially, because of how the Brazilian legislature is set up, it's kind of more parliamentarian at the legislative level, but then they elect a president. So it's really hard to pass laws because there's like 20 something parties. The center is kind of without, it's not an ideological center. It's more of a rent seeking center of families that have been in politics for years or just kind of these political machines, but it's very hard to get them on board. I would say by and large, they're right leaning, but not as ideologically driven as Bolsonaro. They're more just about sustaining their local power. But because Bolsonaro had so many kind of impeachment calls against him and just was losing a lot of political will, he was using this secret budget to basically it's kind of odd if it's there's a legality question that I can't really answer because I'm not a Brazilian law scholar and it's kind of intentionally complex. But there's a loophole that allows for direct payments to people in the legislature to implement plans. But it's been on the scale of billions of reais going directly to different legislatures, some you know who represent really small areas and they're purchasing like, I don't know four or five garbage trucks for a town that wouldn't need it at all, saying they're investing in health clinics and it goes to someone's cousin, right? Kind of typical graph. But this Orçamento Secreto has kind of been the big question around how Bolsonaro has been able to sustain himself politically, but also how all of his promises to, to wipe out corruption were meaningless and we can see that much of the media and elite driven conversation around corruption was really about PT and its project, working class politics, right? Politics that helped the working class and indigenous people and black people, particularly around access to higher education and access to territory. That's a big question with Bolsonaro. There's been a lot of violence in the Amazon, particularly invading indigenous territories. So how corruption has been, it's been very depoliticized at the moment, where it was very much this project of, of attacking the workers' party. But since there's not this kind of ideological drive <laughs> against Pete, the conversation around corruption has dwindled. And for me, that conversation was always about Brazilian hierarchies and who gets to participate and have a sense of social mobility and who is seen as interlopers and undeserving, right? So a lot of the backlash has been against even something like Bolsa Familia or rights for domestic workers, where it was seen as, oh, these are people who shouldn't be. This this is like a favorite genre of mine of, of aggrieved, wealthy Brazilians. But, oh, no, the airport is starting to look like the bus station, right? Like, oh, or imagine running into your doorman in Paris, the sense that people who are undeserving have been have been moving up socially. And that has been, I think, one of the driving forces behind the sense of corruption, because it's or behind the, the project of politicizing corruption in Brazil is around who's deserving and who's not. And Bolsonaro's project has always been about kind of fortifying the hierarchies that already exist in Brazil. 
Jeff, from corruption to cannibalism, uh, we've just had a, an election, uh, and the election campaign, according to the Washington Post, was marked by a lack of civility. Uh, which on the on the one hand, uh, the the example given is that the uh, Bolsonarist Bolsonaristas were labeling their opponents Satanists, and on the other hand, Lula found a video of Bolsonaro talking about how he would eat human flesh, which I think, from a political standpoint, like it's a big ask not to use that. How how would you characterize this election campaign? Oh, that's a really good question. I think because so much of it is beyond the scope of what we can see, like. There is recently a video, this is after the campaign, but there is a video of Bolsonaro supporters who are protesting Lula's victory, who received a message that Alexandre Moraes, who is the head of the election court, had been imprisoned. And they all got this message on WhatsApp and they're all kind of <laughs> celebrating this. And it's it, it's like a, a viral video that's gone around. So, so much of kind of the campaign is in the shadows even though a large part of it has been this kind of mudslinging that you're referring to, but it's because there's just so much like fake news that's going around via WhatsApp and particularly on the Bolsonaro side. So I think a lot of what Lula's campaign did was, you know, try to fight fire with fire. There were also kind of the allegations around Bolsonaro's pedophilia because he talks about going to the north and, and encountering like young Venezuelan women who are, I think, under the age of 16 and saying that, you know, they were very pretty and following them home. And then it's only then that he realized that they were prostitutes. So there was from Lula's camp kind of a an attempt to show who Bolsonaro, the types of things that he says and what that means for his attacks against Lula saying he's a Satanist, right? Because a huge part of Bolsonaro's supporters are evangelical. Brazil historically has been Catholic, but I, I think now the evangelical population is about 30%, most of whom vote for Bolsonaro. There's been a lot of videos also of you know pastors pressuring their congregations to vote for Bolsonaro. That's another site where this fake news and false information spreads. And then just another thing is that the media doesn't necessarily support Lula. They're just kind of angry with Bolsonaro, right? So even though this time it what there wasn't so much of the, oh, this is a hard choice between two extremes, you could definitely see that there was a reluctance around mobilizing people to vote for Lula. It was just this discourse around, you know, saving democracy, but it wasn't giving people a reason to vote for for Lula beyond their kind of hate for Bolsonaro. So I think the campaign was very much about how it, trying to navigate this new media world with WhatsApp, with these kind of echo chambers that really is the groundwork of this new Brazilian right, whether it exists beyond Bolsonaro or not. It's very much ingrained into various different, you know, physical sites like the church also certain occupations, truck drivers, and trying to kind of mobilize people in a, in a different way is going to be really difficult for Lula because these communication networks have had, you know, four years to really develop and, and hook people. So, Speaking of mobilization, on election day itself, we saw huge police operations that seemed designed to suppress the vote. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about 
what sort of voter suppression tactics were employed? Yeah, so the big one was the kind of federal highway police. They they made something like over 500 stops throughout the country, but the majority of which were in the Northeast, which is the Workers' Party stronghold. So basically, they were putting up blitzes or, you know, stopping buses that were believed to be taking people from kind of more rural areas to to their voting stations. They It also happened in big cities. The bridge, I, I know Rio well, so the bridge from Rio to Niteroi. Niteroi overwhelmingly voted for Lula, whereas Rio actually voted for Bolsonaro. But that bridge also had these police checkpoints. So it was really about slowing people down from being able to vote. And Bolsonaro has recently kind of come out and said that one of the ways that he thinks that there was fraud is that a lot of local municipalities had free public bus and transportation on election day. So he's upset that people were able to vote. The head of the highway police the night before had even posted on Instagram and told people to vote for Bolsonaro. So there is a sense that there was collusion, although the the election court did not extend the the voting. It only went until 5 p.m. because they said that it didn't impact to enough of a degree. But there is a sense that it probably impacted around like two to three million people, depending on, you know, times of getting to places and things like that. But the court did did say that it wasn't impactful enough to extend voting hours. Despite all that, Lula managed to scrape out a win. What do you think was the reason for that? Why did Lula manage to win this election? That's a really great question. There's been a lot of kind of geographic analyses around that. So like I said before, the Workers' Party stronghold is in the Northeast. So that would be states like Bahia, although Lula did not win um, Pernambuco. But in the Northeast, Pete, if you look at a map, it went completely red. But that was also in the first round at the beginning of October, where Lula won by about a little bit around 5%. But there were also some other candidates. Tabachi got about 4% and Ciro Gomez got 3 Interestingly, they don't think that a lot of those people migrated to... Lula, a fair amount of them actually probably went to Bolsonaro or were what people call like embarrassed Bolsonaro voters, like they did not want to admit to it the first time. A lot of people actually are saying that Sao Paulo was a little bit of the deciding factor. So Bolsonaro tended to win in kind of mid-sized, more rural cities, major cities in the South and Southeast. Whereas Lula won in the Northeast and big cities in the Northeast, but the Northeast is more densely populated than, say, the interior where Bolsonaro has a huge base. So particularly around agribusiness. Bolsonaro lost or won, excuse me, in less densely populated regions. But the reason a lot of people are pointing to Sao Paulo, for example, is it's the only major city where Lula actually won in the Southeast. So it was really that kind of differential that pushed him over and had this, you know, very slim margin. So there's still a lot. Actually, what's nice about Brazil's electronic kind of voting machines is this data comes out pretty quickly, but there's still at the micro level understanding why that might be. In the case of Sao Paulo, it has... so. I can I can only really compare to Rio because that's where I'm based. He did not win. Lula did not win in, in Rio, which historically has not had a strong Pete presence. But Sao Paulo has. And they've had Hidaji, who was a mayor recently until in 2000. Uh, 
16. So there are ways where Lula was able to make inroads, particularly with working class people in the peripheries of Sao Paulo in ways that didn't happen in cities like Rio, where though there was a switch for more like centrally located and one would assume people with higher educational attainment in Rio. So places like Copacabana and Laranjeiras voted for Lula, whereas in the past, well, Laranjeiras voted for Hadaji. But where, so there was some shift in these cities and those margins for Bolsonaro were smaller where he did win. So I think part of it is there's a little bit of a urban elite in some places who were kind of dissatisfied with Bolsonaro and perhaps even a little bit embarrassed. You can also see that in like votes outside of Brazil. Lula won in in other cities and in Portugal, like Porto. I don't I actually don't know how he did in the US numerically. I know he I know Lula lost Miami, but won San Francisco and Chicago, but the margins got smaller. But nevertheless, it was a very close race and it really came down to Sao Paulo. And I would also say Minas Gerais, which is kind of the bellwether state in Brazil because it it's because of its geographic location. It kind of tells us a little bit about everywhere. It's kind of in the center to the southeast. So it has some influence from the more industrialized southeast and south, but it's kind of northern region that's closer to the northeast did did vote for for Lula. So I think it really came down to some disillusionment in, in places like Sao Paulo, especially, and also just the stronghold of the northeast. Coming into the election, there was this fear that if Bolsonaro lost, he would follow the Trumpist blueprint to its conclusion and just refuse to accept the result. He seems to be accepting the result, even if he's uh, having a little whinge around the edges about public transport and things. Given that it was so close, why has Bolsonaro not uh, gone fully Trump on this? I think he really just does not have the institutional support. His, Even though he's had so many military generals in his cabinet and in the government, kind of the brass aren't really his base. They want stability. They don't want, you know, this erratic character who is going to have, you know, lead to so many deaths during a pandemic and be incompetent. So I think the institutional support is that isn't there. The the Brazilian right, I would actually say, did win these elections by and large. They won a number of governorships, were able to kind of the majority of, of, not the majority, but a good portion of the Senate, given kind of the dynamics that I was saying earlier. So the, the right is still strong, but I think they also weren't keen to question their own losses. That was part of it. Like I said, quite a few people who were allied with Bolsonaro, like Lira in, in Congress, he immediately came out and said, we shouldn't shouldn't question the results. Even religious figures like Silas Malafaya, who's the head of one of these evangelical churches, supported the election results, although has recently come out because of all the mobilization with particularly truck drivers and people blocking, continuing to block roads throughout Brazil. There's, I think there's a little bit of like wanting to to stoke the base, but I think particularly those around, those on the Brazilian right are a little bit <laughs> weary of Bolsonaro and interested in seeing how their project can last without him. That would be kind of my my takeaway. I, I don't think he has that many true allies. It's more people who were using him out of convenience, particularly because of this secret budget that he was using to kind of dole a favor out to, to Congress. 
So it's a bit it's a bit about the party system as well. Uh, you, you mentioned the truck drivers. Uh, there have been widespread truck blockades across Brazil. Could you tell us what those are about and uh, how they've been opposed? Yeah. So, I mean, m- mostly truck drivers and, and also just regular Bolsonaro supporters have been blocking roads and using that as a means to call for either military intervention or recount. The election court actually tweeted out something kind of funny that was like, oh, you guys are asking for a new election. We've already got the date. It's going to be, you know, October 2026. So there's there's a sense that politically there's not a lot of support, but people in the streets who support, support Bolsonaro are, they're highly mobilized and have a lot of structures in place to get people into the streets and a lot of support from kind of the low ranking, both the military and the police. Like I said before, Bolsonaro's like his relationship with the brass is a little bit more questionable. His base has always been he was in the military, has always been kind of the rank and file and police are within the military structure. Like if you looked at an organogram of the of Brazil, the police are part of the military structure. So he's always had that support and that's been enabling some of these blockades. And then a lot of the mobilization or like mobilization to take those down has been by people like everyday working class people who live by some of these blockades. That was the case in Sao Paulo. Also the famously Corinthians, which is a football team and is well known for having a, a, a former leftist player known as Socrates. They're like Turma, their group of supporters took down some of these barriers. So it's been a lot of, even though now the kind of institutions have called on on the police to remove some of these blockades, but a lot of it was also just, you know, everyday people coming together to combat other people who do have a lot of kind of more organic support from the police and the military. So it's going to be interesting to see. Thankfully, those haven't resulted in a lot of violence, but it's going to be interesting to see like where this this energy of Bolsonaro's supporters go because they're highly mobilized, like they, I said, and also just incredibly ideologically driven for this cause of supporting Bolsonaro in particular. I don't think they're as concerned with like the Brazilian right as politicians may be as like an enduring project. Bolsonaro is still is Macias. That's his middle name. He's still the myth to a lot of these people. So having him in power is still something that can mobilize, mobilize the base. And he didn't necessarily dismiss them. Right. I think in his non-concession speech, he was mostly he was saying we shouldn't use the tactics of the left, like blocking roads because it's bad for the economy. Right. So what other tactics he's promoting? Who knows? But he's, you know, telling them to stop with a little bit of a a wink at the same time. What does it say about the state of the institutional left in Brazil that it's up to football ultras and, uh, you know, ordinary workers to take these things down and their response is, you know, oh, we'll call the police. I did did not mention that the, the, both the MST, so the landless workers movement and the people without homes, without roofs, literally in the translation, they also mobilize. So there are organized factions of the left that did kind of take down some of these blockades as well. I think if we're kind of thinking more about, you know, that depending how on how we're thinking about institutions, I think at the moment there's a sense of 
wanting a return to institutional stability. That was kind of Lula's campaign, right? It was this broad front that, you know, even saw his running mate was from the party that Pete has been going against for years. Who He also had Fernando Henrique Cardozo like support him. So I think there is kind of a want for institutional stability from the left. But also, like, as I said, the the right does control a lot of local and state governments already. And that's also been amplified. So, like, it's clear who's in charge. Nobody takes their seat until January 1st. But how those lines are drawn and who who is going to kind of mobilize the police to what one might think is their job to do is still kind of up in the air because of the the their support for their support for Bolsonaro. Just finally, a bit of a question out of self-interest as an inhabitant of the planet. Can the Amazon be saved by Lula? Ooh, that is a great question. I mean, during his initial two terms from 2002 to 2010, there was a decrease in deforestation. So it's been done before, but a lot of those agencies were dismantled by Bolsonaro, particularly scientific agencies that use satellite data to kind of track. Very famously, he dismissed one of the heads of the of kind of this uh, organization that's in charge of tracking deforestation and replaced it with an army general. So that I, I have a sense of optimism, especially because it's been done before. Also with the granting of more territories for indigenous people and Quilombola people who are the descendants of of slaves who've claimed territory for a long time. So that's my hope is because it's been done before, it can be do, done again. As with, you know, the truck drivers, there is a lot of mobilization for these kind of both small and large scale agribusinesses to continue to encroach on land in not only the Amazon, but also the Pantanal, which is kind of a savanna area in Brazil, but to encroach on these even protected territories. That was what, I don't know if your listeners have heard of, you know, the murder of Don Phillips and Bruno Pereira, but they were investigating uh, these encroachments in the Amazon into indigenous territory and were assassinated for their efforts. So there's a lot of violence in these areas and those people have been highly mobilized. And those are the people who, you know, voted not only for Bolsonaro, but for local right wing officials who will, you know, maybe turn the other the other way. And there is also the question of the role of of even the police, again, of different agencies within the police to track these things. So it isn't going to be easy. Um, but my hope is, like I said, Lula's government, you know, de- radically decreased deforestation during his first two terms that kind of leveled off a little bit under under Jilma. But the hope is that, you know, the Workers' Party can do it again. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us, Steph. If people want to follow you on Twitter, you are at Steph Rice. Thank you so much. All right, folks, Global Intifada is up next. We'll be back next week. See you later. To celebrate International Transgender Awareness Week, 13th to 19th of November, the Trans Pride March Melbourne is on Sunday 13th of November. Trans Pride March Melbourne highlights trans visibility like never before by uplifting voices in our community and continuously passing the mic. 
Attend the march Sunday 13th of November at 11.30am outside Victorian State Library, Swanston Street, CBD. And for those who can't make it along, 3CR will be broadcasting live from the march from 12 to 4pm. Your favourite Sunday Arvo queer programmers will bring you interviews, speeches and all the action live from the march. Tune into 3CR Digital, stream online at 3cr.org.au or dial into 855am for Trans Pride March Melbourne, Sunday 13th November. <laughs> 